0: we uh, started a series of messages uh, a few weeks back and uh, when you're know, trusting God when he does when it does make sense to trust him you see all the things going on in life everything around you we know what the bible says but our what we see and what we hear and what we experience is just not going along with what we think life ought to be it's not our expectation at all and so we have a tendency to look at life and look at things, even in the Bible. We say, well, you know, I know how to look at things in the Bible, the resurrection and, you know, the, the story of Jonah and the story of Genesis. And I ought to believe those things, but they seem kind of impossible. So anything's impossible, basically, we, we just have a, a tendency not to believe. And yet, there are things in the Bible that were done. As we studied through the book of Matthew, we uh, understood so many times a miracle would occur And it was unexplainable. It was undeniable that it actually happened, but yet we could not really, they could not really explain it. One of the things that uh, Doug Osborne brought out, he found an article, and um, our East Campus pastor, and he found an article about uh, baseball. And he said, one of the things they've discovered is that scientists have uh, discovered that it's impossible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. When they think about the movement that's taking place, and to think about the speed and the bat speed coming around, the reaction time, the split-second reaction time that we have, um, it's impossible to do that. And yet it's undeniable because every year, every game, pitchers now are, uh, by habit, are throwing over 90 miles an hour. Their fastballs, almost every pitcher now has a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, sometimes closer to 100, and yet people uh, are hitting it. Men are hitting it. Baseball players are hitting it every single game. Now, I want you to know as I finish up this message and just uh, series and just try to tie everything together that I have hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. Not by a real live pitcher, but by one of those machines. At least it said it was going 90 miles an hour. I don't know. Well, how did you do that? Well, I'm going to share with you how I did that in just a minute. But as we're looking at this, we understand that we oftentimes have trouble trusting in the Lord because we just don't see how things are really possible because of what we're seeing around us. And we think to ourselves, God, if I really followed you, and I am, we always think we are, I'm really following you, therefore nothing bad ought to happen to me. And we've said in an illustration, the very first message that we preached here, it's like going, you decide, I'm going to go to uh, New York City, and that's where I want to go. I want to travel up 95, and I want to go to New York City, but you get in on 95, and you understand the traffic is just horrendous. It's just awful. It's back, back to back to back to back, very slow moving. There are wrecks up ahead. Every time you turn around, there's another wreck, and you think, hey, I can get off 16 here. I can just get off 16, uh, go to, what is it, Macon. I can hit 75. I can go up, hit I-20, And and then I can go that way. And what happens is, is that you get on 16. If you've ever been on 16, there is no traffic on 16. Nobody lives there. There are no stores. Get your gas before you get on that road. And so you get to Macon, and, and you're traveling on through, and you end up in Dallas, Texas. But there was no traffic. And it was all smooth. But here's the thing. When you make the right decisions in life, and you go the right direction in life, all it guarantees you is you're going to end up in the place where God wants you to be. It doesn't mean there's not going to be wrecks along the way. doesn't mean there's not going to be traffic and adversity and trials along the way. And as we open up the book of James, um, we really tie this whole series together. Because as we begin in Proverbs talking about wisdom and its wisdom literature, we go to the book of the New Testament, the only book of the New Testament that would give us any indication of wisdom literature. Because James, the brother of Jesus here, is not really concerned so much with doctrine, so much with teaching. He's interested in applying the doctrine. And we said in that opening message that wisdom is weaving the knowledge of God into the fabric of life. It's really just applying what we know to life. And as we open up to James chapter 1, a lot of questions come up. For example, why do we even go through trials? Why do we even do that? Why, why is that necessary? And can't we avoid them somehow? And what do we really need? How do we get through it? There's something that this passage says that we need when we go through trials in life as we're you know, getting, our, getting our faith tested. Let's read it. James. Oops. That bat was getting me back. for I tell you what, guys, it would be great if someone, as I'm reading this, oh, I got a, st- no, that won't do. Let me do this, because I'm going to need this bat again, because at the end of this message, I'm thinking about pitching the ball up in the air, <laughs> and whopping up somebody, somebody's been sleeping beside, beside the head, <clears throat> so I'm, we've got cameras on you. That's all I've got to say. We've got cameras on you. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you... must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. I want us to look at three things this morning. First of all, as we go through trials and our faith is being tested, what do we need to see? What do we need to know? And thirdly, what do we need to have? First of all, what do we need to see? Let's look at the very first verse here. It says that James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes. Now, the the 12 tribes, he's writing this to Hebrew Christians. And James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, just keep in mind, James, this, this James is not the disciple that walked around with Jesus. This James was the brother, the blood brother of Jesus Christ, obviously the younger brother. And as he was growing up in that home, you can imagine how it was. How many of you ever seen the movie Fred Claus? Anybody here? Man, you're missing out on a good Christmas movie. That's all i got to say. But Vince Vaughn plays the the role of the brother of Santa Claus. And he's left the family, won't have anything to do with the family anymore, because he grew up in a home where his brother was perfect in every way. So you can imagine what James was going through. He couldn't blame anything on Jesus. It couldn't, I mean, it's like uh, our grandson makes a mess, and he tells Pam, he said... Piper made a mess, talking about his sister. And then he says, No, Nana, I'm just kidding. I made the mess, but I love you. So, anyway, you can't blame anything. You can't make up, you can't revisit history and change history in some way to make it your brother's fault. He's always the perfect one. And we get every indication that he never followed Jesus Christ, he never followed Jesus in the path. Uh, through galilee and all the way to jerusalem and all we don't see any indication that he is at the cross that he is the resurrection but now we find him as the leader of the entire maybe the entire church and so as we look at this we we look in verse two where it says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds here's what verse two is saying to us trials are inevitable You can't get around them. And as a matter of fact, anything that can happen to a lost person can happen to you. Now, keep in mind, if you just think about it for just a moment, if we could get out of every trial of life, everything that was going on bad in our life, then people would come to know Christ, or at least they say they're trying to come to know Christ in some way while holding on to their own life, but they would say, I'm a follower of Jesus in hopes of, of using Jesus in some way to get over all their trials. And so we have various trials in life. And as we realize this, and now I know that if you go through sin in your life and you live a carnal life, you're going to have more trials and adversity than the next guy. You're going to suffer for the consequences of your sin. But also we we suffer for the consequences of other people's sins as well. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, the Bible says in Romans 5 that sin entered into one man and death fell upon all men for all of sin so the bible says because adam and eve sinned we inherited a sin nature and we suffer because of that if a drunk driver has a car accident and you're involved in that you weren't drunk you weren't driving drunk but yet you face the consequences of what was going on in that life around you and so yes there is certain amount of Certainly the drug addict is going to go through more adversity than the person that is not hooked on drugs. Alcoholism, the same way. And so we look at it in that perspective. But everything that could happen to a person that does not know Christ could happen to you. And as I say that, a lot of you sort of say, well, I agree with that. But, man, man I don't really like to hear that because I just kind of like to think that if I follow Jesus, nothing bad will happen to me. You know, the promises are there, and this promise and that promise, and now you're telling me the trials. The reason why we are squeamish about that kind of statement is because of what we expect in life. Now, you've heard it said before that we live in a secular society. Now, if I were to ask you what that meant, you would say worldly. You would say sinful. You would say people living for themselves. And certainly the word secular has not only... It's taken on a political meeting. It's taken on all kinds of things. But the word secular simply means now. People who live in the now. The idea is to secular living is that you have 70, 80, 90, 90 years, maybe at the most, to live the happiest life you can possibly live on this earth in the pursuit of happiness. So, therefore, you've got to do what is going to make you happy in life. And the expectation is, look, If something bad happens in your life, if something happens where uh, suddenly you can't walk anymore, you can't see anymore, or something happens bad in your life that you lose your job, then that takes away your pursuit of happiness. That puts you at, at a disadvantage of life. Maybe you'll never reach the true happiness that you wanted before, and therefore, everything bad that would possibly happen to you is a bad thing because it takes away your pursuit of happiness right now and we live as a church in that now we often do that we often do not live in the light of eternity we live in the right now how is it how is this recession 10 years ago affecting me today why is it that so many people seem to walk away at least temporarily from the faith because they were mad at God because their expectation was not met that God was going to Bless them because they were giving or whatever. They were coming to church and they felt like, they, they at least felt like they were right with God. And all of a sudden now, God, you're taking all that away from me. Therefore, I can no longer live in the now where I can be happy right now. And yet, as we look at, the, at our culture, we're one of the few cultures in history, all the way back to, probably to the Roman Empire, that would look at life that way. I mean, even in the Old West days, remember watching the movies of the Old West and you can see it now, here's uh, someone, a lady with a dress on, of all things, she's wearing a dress and her hair is kind of put up and it's going in every kind of direction and it's coming out from the ponytail and she's walking out and she's uh, slopping the hogs or feeding the chickens. And here comes the Indians coming around or, or the outlaws or whoever it is coming around the corner. And she has to run in the house and get the, get the shotgun or whatever. You've seen those movies before. You've seen where the droughts come and, and the, and the uh, crops dry up and maybe the rains flood everything around them because they're near the river. You've seen all kinds of people expected before our generation to go through adversity in life. They expected that. And they looked forward to a better time and they appreciated the happy times that they have here on earth when they had them. But our expectation is, is that as I'm living in the now and not living for eternity, I have a right to be happy. I have a right to be healthy. I have a right to have my prayers answered. I have a right. I follow Jesus. And sometimes we can just fool ourselves by the way in that. You know, I read a statistic not too long ago that said people in our country say that if everyone, 70% say this, 70% say if everyone loved everybody else like I love everybody else, we'd have a happy world. Now think about that for just a moment. That's not true. It can't be true. If everybody loved like I loved, then the world would be better. If one person felt that way, we can say, well, maybe that's possible. But 70%, if 70% feel that way, then that, that would be statistically impossible for this world to be a better place. It should be a better place already if we were loving like those 70%. And so we look at ourselves in a, in a totally different way. So as we're going through this, what do we need then to know? Look in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, tr- when you meet trials of various kinds, notice that these trials are going to be of various kinds but now we're considered to we should have joy what is that all about i mean it's one thing to say okay i'm going to live for eternity and i realize that i'm not entitled to anything right now and maybe that's true but to have joy in the trial why should i do that well here's the thing presence and purpose jesus has always promised to be with us in the trial, no matter what kind of trial that is. Remember on the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's going to be with us no matter what. Now, the Bible says in Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of God, there is joy. So God is going to be in the trial with you. You can experience the presence of God probably better than you could without the trial. But then also there's a purpose involved as well. Now, sometimes there's a purpose involved or a purpose is accomplished, even if you're not a believer. Somebody goes through a trial, they they mature through it. You and I both know that a child growing up, if they don't face any adversity at all, they never grow up. They remain a child. And so those kind of principles outside the Bible and outside our faith apply inside our faith as well. Because there are purposes. For example, to prove our faith, to stretch it, to have a greater capacity of faith. It's like a balloon. You know, you, the more you stretch a balloon, the more capacity it has for the air. First Peter says... So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes throat, though it was tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, look, I want your capacity to believe, your capacity to believe all that. He says, well, P- pastor, come back to the baseball thing. One, one, what is the secret of hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball? Listen very carefully. No, I mean listen to the ball as it passes by because you can't see it. You listen very carefully, and you you time your swing by what you hear. But here's the thing. Before I hit the 90-mile-an-hour fastball, I hit the 40-mile-an-hour fastball. And then I hit the 60-mile-an-hour fastball, and I got used to that. And then I hit the 75-mile-an-hour fastball, and every single one was a challenge. So what do we do to have great faith? We have great faith by taking little steps toward the Lord. And some of that has to do with the testing. How do you know you have faith unless it is really tested? So God tests our faith to stretch our faith in order to have the capacity to believe him more. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six. 6. And our capacity to gain everything that we need in this life and in the life to come has to do with how we believe God and so God wants to stretch that capacity to believe, but also to point us to Christ. It's another reason. And certainly I think this is part of the reason, again, to this passage as well. To point us to Christ, you and I both know when we when we really go through adversity in life, we're going to respond in two ways. We're going to be better or bitter. We're going to become bitter against God, angry against God, and turn against Him because He's not meeting what Our expectations are of life, and heaven knows we know better. I know better than he does, right? And so, therefore, it's not working out like I want it to work out, or I'm going to be desperate, and I'm going to be called closer to God. I'm going to be praying more, reading the Bible more, looking for wisdom more, looking for direction more. It's going to point to Jesus Christ, for the goodness of God leads people to repentance. But then I want you to notice in these verses, it also talks about a steadfastness, a maturity here. He says, for we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, Another word for this is endurance. Being able to stick to something and stick to the Christian life, even through the adversities of life. A steadfastness. That means, hey, you're going through a trial. What what have you been doing? I've been reading the Bible. Keep reading the Bible. Well, I've been praying. Well, pray more. Pray pray that much, but, but pray more. What else? Well, you're steadfast, but as you're looking at your life, as you're standing still, really looking at life and praying before God, you're going to ask God, God, what do I need to get out of my life? What do I need to change about my life? There's an enduring factor here that he he talks about. And again, what do you do? How do you build up muscle in the gym? You, first of all, before you lift lift 200 pounds, you got to lift 100. You got to lift 120, 140. How do you swing a, a, a bat to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball? You have to get used to it. You have to to pass one test to get to the next test. The end result here, he says, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect. And this word perfect in the original language does mean mature. Now, you've heard that said all your life. You say, well, I don't know about that. No, it does mean mature, perfect as far as maturity goes, fully matured and complete, lacking in nothing. There's the goal right there. Faith, Charles Stanley has said, faith must be tested in order to develop and produce. The end result is maturity in Christ. Just like as as a person that doesn't know the Lord. Somebody goes through adversity of life, they go through a brokenness in life, you can tell there's something different about their life when they respond to that in a positive way. Even more so when we're talking about the Christian life. God places something in our life or maybe just society, culture, The world places something in our life, and he says, I'm going to be with you in this trial. Not only am I with you, but I have a product. I have a purpose that's going to bring about you being tested, growing your faith, growing in the Christian life, becoming more Christ's life, and having the greater capacity to do something that really counts. Now we look, and we say, well, how do I do that? I mean, Pastor, I mean, after all, I don't even know half the time whether a test is coming or not. In fact, I don't know 90% of the time. And even when I'm in the test, I'm thinking to myself, this is just a secular thing. I don't even look at the spiritual. I mean, it may be days in the trial before I realize this is a test in my life. What do I need? Well, James tells us that. He says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, if you just were to read this without the context of the entire chapter, you would, you would think to yourself, he's changing subjects. You know, he's changed, and back in the end of this chapter, he talks about temptation. And then he talks about uh, going by the word of God and living by the word of God. All this fits together here. All of it fits together. He's saying, look, you need wisdom, wisdom to live the Christian life. But then he goes on to talk about, and these verses will not go over this morning, but he talks about temptation. He says, look, sometimes you're going to get off base. What do you do when temptation comes? And you're trying to be wise. And he goes through the entire chapter that way. But let's look at it. All this ties together. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Wisdom. Now, wisdom, as we said, is applied knowledge. And he says we need to pray for it because God is generous. And he goes on to say he gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He says you need the wisdom of God. You need to know The mind of God and the wisdom and how to respond to that trial. Maybe what's going on in your life, but even more important to that is how to respond without reproach, without a bitterness in your life, without coming against God in in a negative, um, reprimanding way. Now you think, well, why would I do that? Well, we do that all the time. Why? Because of the expectation deal. What do we expect of God? Well, we expect to, to live as Americans, especially in this culture, if I follow God, if I, if I do this and do that and do that, you know, he's going to bless me and I'm not going to have any trials of life. That's what we expect. And when we don't get it, we begin to have reproach without the wisdom of God. Let me, let me uh, suppose someone here is about ready to experience an anniversary. And you usually take your wife, To some pretty decent restaurants, uh, Burger King, (laughs) Chick-fil-A, and maybe that's where you go. Hey, you know, let's just, you don't feel like cooking tonight. Let's just go out here and go to a fast food place. Sure, let's go. So now you're experiencing an anniversary and you say, hey, I I got something really special, you know, for you tonight, real special. And so she gets all gussied up. She's got an evening gown on. You show up with uh, some slacks and just a shirt, you know, kind of business casual, as they call it today. And you're off in the car and you're going. And you pull into the park. He says, now, I want you to close your eyes. And you close your eyes and and you drive in. He said, now, open your eyes. And it's, can I say this? I'm advertising something here. I'm sorry. The Golden Corral. I mean, it's all you can eat, anything you want, right? And so she's going in in an evening dress and said, look at this, honey, you can have anything you want to eat for $12.95. All you want. Chances are she's going to be saying, I cannot believe this. And he's in the doghouse. But on the other hand, suppose you'd be driving along somewhere maybe on 50, and you pull off side of the road because you see a homeless man. And he's right in front of the Golden Corral. And he says, come on in, come on. And he walks in, never been in a Golden Corral before. And he says, I want you to look around all this food. I'm going to pay for your food, and you can eat here as long as you want, as much as you want. He would, have, he would feel like, I think, that he had made it to heaven. See, it's what you expect. It's your perspective on life. And God says, look, I want you to have my perspective. How do you get that? The wisdom of God. Now, the world's wisdom is explained in James. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual. Then it says this, demonic. That's not the kind of wisdom you want. You see, the old, the world's type of wisdom says uh, this. It says, as C.S. Lewis would say, we try to conform reality to our wishes. And so what do we need? We need wisdom to do that, right? We need the wisdom, the world's wisdom, in order to manipulate the situation and manipulate people to come around to my way of thinking so they'll do things in my way so reality changes from what it really is to my perspective. That's what we're trying. We're using wisdom in order to change things to our way of life, what we want. But God's wisdom is to conform my wishes to God's reality. And what does it take to do that? It takes the solution to that. He says in this, these verses, wisdom. So how do you get that? You know, it's pretty simple here. You know, we can have some kind of big formula, but it's pretty simple. I want you to look at just a couple of three things here. Real, real easy. He says, first of all, let it. Notice it says up here in our, in our text. Verse 4, and let steadfastness, this endurance, have its full effect. Let it. Let steadfastness. Let it come to a fruition in life. This word steadfastness comes from two Greek words meaning uh, hypomenon, hypo, hyper. In other words, st- a strength here, and menon means stand, hyperstand. You hyperstand and allow what God is doing in your life to have a full effect without running, without escaping, without fleeing to or, or trying to have a trick up your sleeve somehow to get out of that trial, Knowing that God has that plan for you. So you let it. If you want wisdom, you stand fast. You hyperstand so God can do this kind of wise work in your life. Then he says this He said, You need to be single minded. He says, If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is the, like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. He says you need to be single-minded, not double-minded. A person that's double-minded, unstable in all of his ways, this comes from the Greek uh, expression of being drawn in quarter. It was used in that expression. One ho- horse tied onto this hand and this leg, another horse tied on this hand and this leg, and you're split apart. You're double-minded. It's like you've got a split mind. You can't decide what you want. Do you want what you want? Do you want what God wants? I want what God wants. No, I want what what I want. God, would you just want what I want? And over and over, he says, no, you be single-minded as Jesus as your Lord. Going all the way back up to verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God, this word is a bond servant it's a slave now he goes from a rebellious brother all the way back to saying i am a slave of my brother i am a slave of jesus christ i am single minded he is the lord of my life i do desire what he wants i am standing Fast. He says, otherwise you're gonna be unstable. Why is what's gonna be unstable about it? Well, I'm gonna want what God wants one day or one moment and what I want the next moment. Back and forth, back and forth. Your consistent, your your inconsistencies of decisions and choices will overwhelm you. And you don't you'll you'll be standing still in life almost. If you decide to go to the right one day, to the left the next day, to the right the next day, to the left the next day, you're gonna be right back where you started. In fact, probably to the negative. Because if you're not single-minded of wanting what God wants in your life, the chances are very good that you're going to make more wrong decisions than right decisions. He says, don't be double-minded. He says, have the faith to move forward. He says for this, he said, if you have that kind of faith, if you're going to hyperstand, he said, just ask me. That's what it says here. If any of the last wisdom, let him ask. Just ask God. God, I'm going through this trial in life, and I won't respond the way you want me to respond. I I need the wisdom of God in my life. Otherwise, my faith and trusting you makes no sense. I've got to do something myself. I'm not going to hypersat. I'm going to be moving out. I'm going to do something totally different. I'm going to run from you. I'm going to leave you behind. I'm going to get bitter against you. So, God, I need your wisdom, so I'm asking for it with a single mind, steadfastness in heart. I'm just asking you to help me. And so, God is saying, look, I would answer all of your prayers if you knew what you really wanted. If you knew what was best for you, then you would ask what I would want you to ask, and I'd answer all those prayers. If you just wanted what I wanted. And how do you want what God wants? You get the wisdom of God in your life. You can see trials for what they are and what God wants to do in your life. Now, I know that there's trials in life that we go through that have nothing to do with us. And that you feel helpless with. You do. It's that brother, that sister, that child, grandchild that is not walking with the Lord, that certain circumstance in life financially that has nothing to do with you at all, and you're thinking, God, I want the wisdom, I want you to know what to do and how to handle the situation, I know you can give me that, but God, is there any hope of this prayer ever being answered? Well, let me come back to our text. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, James, growing up in this home, I'm sure Mary and Joseph were just listening to both stories. Well, we know Jesus is right; he can't sin. And of all people, never to re- to not recognize that a man could be or recognize that a man could become God. The Jewish people, as I've said before, were the last people to ever admit that. And so here you have a situation. James, nowhere to be found in the ministry of Jesus. James, nowhere to be found at the cross. James, nowhere to be found after the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible says that Jesus appeared before the 12 and then to more than 500, and he appeared to James. And the idea, it didn't say, oh, he appeared to James and Paul and Peter. He appeared to James. I get the picture in that story that Jesus had to go out and find James. Rebellious. Rebellious. Not wanting anything to do maybe with with Jesus or the family. Living his own life, doing his own thing. And you can imagine when he saw the resurrected Lord. You can imagine, I mean, he's had to be thinking, wow, didn't I go to your funeral? I mean, something. But when he saw Jesus for who he was and really is, his life was changed forever. Dear friends, when our loved ones come to see Jesus for who he is, face to face then with who they are, they will never be the same again. Ever? How do do you hit a 90 mile an hour fastball? I can tell you, you go a little bit of the time, but you then you just keep on swinging. I didn't tell you, but I missed it the first ten times I swung, and then I hit a few foul balls until I hit a solid lick. It just takes keeping on, steadfastly swinging. Keep praying keep asking. Get the wisdom of God in your life. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I love what the Bible says. It says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is your heart completely his today? If not, you can pray and say, God, I'm a Christian, but my heart is not completely yours. I want to be in the place of blessing place of favor more than anything else in my life. So I pray that you'll place me there today. The altar is open. We ask you to come if you want and just say, God, that's who I want to be. I want to be the one whose heart is completely yours. Then if you've never received Christ into your heart, I want to ask you to pray with me right now. And as you pray, you're inviting Christ into your heart to make a difference in your life. And so pray with me right now. Lord God, as I come to you in prayer, I ask you, Lord, to give me wisdom. Wisdom to know that you love me. Wisdom to know that you died on the cross for my sins. Wisdom to know that you want to help me and be generous with me now. And so I open up my heart and I ask you to come in. Forgive me of my sins. Guide me. Take me where you want me to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.